The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.
Good morning. Welcome to everyone, all of you who are here with us and those of you who are joining us on live stream. I am Carmen Barsodi. I am joined on the chancel this morning with Reverend Vanessa Rush Southern, our senior minister, and with Reverend Laura Shenham, our minister of congregational life. We thank the support of the team and musicians and all who are helping make this service possible this morning. We hope all of you here or on live stream have your order of service so you can follow along in worship. For those who are joining us on live stream, if you have any issues or problems at any time, know that somebody is monitoring the chat to answer any questions. And a quick COVID note, masks are no longer required but you are encouraged to wear one or do whatever you need to do to feel safe and comfortable. And to my left is this section against the wall, marked and reserved for anyone who would like to be in a masked-only uh, section. Now I invite you to join me in the chalice lighting. The words are in the order of service. So there. Let us say it together. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Now let's join in singing together the hymn number 1074, Turn the World Around by Harry Belafonte as we honor his passing on April 25th.
just like life, sometimes you get lost and you don't know which words you're supposed to sing, but there are people singing beautifully complicated rhythms and you just try to back them up. Life as improv. We'll be talking more about that in a sermon on jazz coming up in a few weeks. I'm Vanessa Southern. It's lovely to see you all here. It's lovely to have you all joining from your homes. Uh, if you are here for the first time, a special welcome. We're glad to have you with us wherever you are. And if you want to continue to get connected or find out more about the congregation, there are these connection forms, either online or in the pew in front of you. And you just fill them out, and we'll send you every Wednesday a weekly newsletter that talks about what's going on in the congregation. And Friday, you will get the reminder of Sunday service with a live stream link if you need it, and a copy of the order of service if you want a preview of coming events. So please um, fill those out and let us know if there's any other way we can support you. Glad to have you here. The order of service, as you can see, lists all kinds of upcoming events, so a few just to name. This morning and the first Sunday of every month are BIPOC community gathers in hybrid. So some folks here and some people joining remotely. Um, so please put that on your calendar if you are um, someone who would like to join that community. As a, if you're a BIPOC member or visitor, we'd love to have you get connected. Um, there's a retreat coming up in July that they're planning, so lots of great moments for deepening together. There is a newcomer orientation this Sunday after service in the fireside room. Is that correct? Yes, okay. Fireside room. You can ask people where it is, but basically if you see this big rounded building in the courtyard, that's our chapel. And right across that is the fireside room. So you can either cut through and kind of go past the chapel, or you can swing long way around the hallways. And if you get lost, ask someone with a name tag. They should be able to tell you how to get there. And they might even escort you, which would be lovely. So look at all the other events, book clubs, the forum, um, the last of John's history course is this week, right, JB? So um, if you're interested in that, that man with the red sweater can get you a link because um, he's going to be talking about his book, The History of the Congregation, which is for sale also. Um, and it's, it's amazing, amazing vision on uh, this congregation, but also San Francisco. Um, I believe, Cheryl, you had an announcement? Okay. Hi, all of you. Okay, can you hear me? How many of you have been to the retreat? Oh, good, I'll need your help. And we could sure use a clown. Is Poindexter anywhere? Well, get down here, because we're talking about the all-church retreat. You have to stay on the mic or the live stream. People can't hear you. Okay. Come on down. All right. Woo! I feel like I'm running for something. You are running for something. <laughs> Well, we thought we'd tell you just how fun the retreat is. One of my favorite things about it is the fireside singing that we do. Uh, and when they can have it, when it's good weather, we have it outside. But even in a pinch, when it rained one year, we did s'mores in the fireplace in the big lodge. 
That's one of my favorite things, is everyone singing together and having a good time by the fire. And I like playing games into the night with a little vino. Ooh. <laughs> and the swimming pool. And there's one thing I really like, the talent show. And one of the fun things in the talent show is the beaver call. <laughs> Who knows the beaver call? <laughs> Woo! And then another thing, they always have telescopes so that you can see the stars and the moons and the planets. And it's just wonderful up there where you can actually see the stars at night in Sonoma amongst all the redwoods and sequoias. There's also an outdoor chapel that's just one of the most calming places I've ever seen. And, uh, and there's lots of fun between the generations. It's not just old, it's not just young, it's everything and in between. So let's go all. Let's go with the beaver call. See you there. <laughs> See you at the return. Registration stops on the 15th, so get your registrations in. That's right, registration is the 15th. And I will say that my husband and daughter, when they heard about this, planned to come for a day and then they had an excuse to leave that they were grateful for because they're not people who go to these sorts of things. But I would just like you to know that after the first day, they were sad that they had an excuse. It's really just a lovely time and spacious and gorgeous and workshops and all the things that um, Dennis and Cheryl just mentioned. So come, come and sign up. I have two last announcements. One is just to let folks know that what we hear is that the banners that we, dis that we designed are fine, have finally got a permit and that they're gonna go up early this week. Right, Dolores, is that, that's what we've heard? So we're, it's gonna happen very early in the morning when there's no traffic. So we're gonna try and capture it on video and then you'll get to see them. I hope next week's so everybody cross their fingers. We also wanna thank the 190 households who have pledged so far. That's um, fantastic, we're incredibly grateful. We have over $683,000 raised, which is great, and 47 households who um, I think need to find where that mailing was on their uh, coffee table and or just find the link online, which is super easy to find at the website of the church and fill it out. Um, we are determined in this community to continue the strong programming, to continue to keep the building welcoming to us and all the other groups that use it, including the Young Women's Choir that will be having their um, celebration today, which is why we've given over the space in particular ways to make their time here joyful. All the ways that we build community as institutions for which there are, I think there are fewer and fewer that make space available, and certainly with as wide an embrace as we do, and a long history of that. Um, and so that's a piece of our ministry that we're continued to be, we continue to be committed to, um, and being equitable employers, and the denomination has changed some of the expectations in ways I think are legitimate, and we're trying to meet that bar. Um, and we're keeping the ask and the goal this year at the same as last year, which is a sleight of hand and a miracle. Um, but we're doing a lot and trying to do it um, very responsibly. So thank you all. Um, by noon today, we need to have pledges in because we need to present to the congregation a budget that is balanced. So if we don't see pledges in, we will be proposing cuts that you will all vote on at the budget meeting. Um, and you'll get a mailing about that too. So your pledges matter, they always do, in good times and in bad times. 
Um, Pete's coffee will not be there for us when the world is falling apart or some of the laws are passed as they're being passed right now in our country to put the death penalty on women who get abortions, to take trans children away from their families, um, and in our own city, some of the things that we need to continue to stand up for, as well as just when life deals us um, a hard hand and the joyful times that we get to celebrate on an ongoing basis. So thank you for making all of that possible, everybody. Our offering, in the spirit of what we make possible, I keep meaning to present a report that I run out of time to present, so let me just tell you that last church year, we raised $24,000 to give away from our plate offerings. This year, through April 9th, which is where we're up to speed with all of our counting, we have raised 20, over $26,000 to give away. I remind you, we are a 300-member church. I just think sometimes we think of ourselves as smaller than we are and our capabilities as smaller than they are and we need to be reminded of incredibly of just how much power we have in the world and that we exercise in the world and all of these organizations know when we take it as an offering that the Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco stands behind them which is a much more powerful muscular vote of support for them as institutions so this week, we're taking for the second time an offering. So we took one last year for the Black Women's Health Imperative. I encourage you to read about it. I'm sure you have seen, as I have, I mean, we know the inequities in health based on race, but I'm sure many of you saw that there was a new study that studied decades of births in California and found the richest black mothers and their babies were twice as likely to die from childbirth, in childbirth as the richest white mothers and their babies. So earning more and being better educated doesn't protect black families from what is clearly the legacy of racism as it shows up in our healthcare system. And the articles talk about all kinds of other studies like one from Pennsylvania that found that new mothers who are black are significantly more likely to be tested for drugs than white mothers, even though white mothers are more likely to test positive. And the stories of inequity in treatment that make medical care less welcoming, go on and on. And it is in the face of this that the Black Women's Health Initiative, started by black women, largely run by black women, was begun to advocate for change and educate healthcare supporters. And we are part of that, thanks to the Hamner family who introduced it to us two years ago. So last year in November, when we took the offering for this group, we raised $1,275 for them. It was one of our largest Sunday offerings. So thank you all for that. And this morning, I want you to know in advance that that is where our offering will go to support the Black Women's Health Initiative. Um, and I'm proud of us standing behind them, as I know you guys are, as it speaks to our values in the world and what it means to dismantle racism in nuts and bolts ways. So with that, all of our brief announcements are over, and let's greet one another, but briefly, and then we'll come back into making worship together. Thank you.
Good morning. I get to read the first reflection out of Vanessa's book, and it's called Diaper Wisdom by Reverend Christian Schmidt. When one of my sons was quite young, no longer a baby, but only just into toddlerhood, we were out at a local park. He was having a blast, though I noticed he was walking a little funny. He had, not for the first time, wet his diaper and right through his clothes, despite having a fresh diaper on. Such is life. After all, I was prepared. I had the diaper bag. I had plenty of diapers and wipes. I had a change of clothes. I had a portable changing pad. I had everything. There was no public restroom nearby, but I made do on a park bench. I laid him down on the pad, pulled off his little outfit, cleaned him up, and got him in a brand new diaper, ready to conquer the world. And off he went, toddling around the playground. Except that almost immediately he returned, another wet stain spreading down his pants. I picked him up, wondering what on earth could have gone wrong. A quick investigation revealed the issue. I had failed to make sure his penis was completely inside the diaper, <laughs> which it turns out almost completely stimmies the diaper's capacity to hold fluid. And it gets worse. For all my preparations, it turned out I had packed only one spare outfit. All I could find in the bottom of the diaper bag was a shirt four sizes too big for him. I felt awful. We had only just gotten to the park and now we would have to go home, which I knew my little boy would throw a fit about. So I did it. I put him in a fresh diaper, triple checked the proper placement, and dressed him in one ridiculously large shirt and sent him off into the world. Off he went in his giant t-shirt, as happy as could be. And I breathed several sighs of relief, relaxing on the park bench, park bench like I had just run a marathon. I've since, I've since thought there's a lesson in here for all of us, other than the obvious one, which is to make sure you tuck your penis into your clothing. <laughs> you can make all the preparations in the world. You can have all the experience. You can do almost everything right. And still, one little mistake can ruin the whole endeavor. Or, and stay with me here, you can be thankful for what you have and keep on playing. Much of parenting has been like this for me, learning and growing and adjusting my expectations, many of which I never realized I had until they were broken. We have the child we have, not the one we have planned for. We are the parent we are, not the parent we might wish we were. We let those truths haunt us, or we can keep on playing. For my son, the choice was obvious. I'm still learning to be more like him. Before we get to our covenant, I'm not sure how many of you know, 
that on Friday, our senior minister had a birthday. She's, and she's 39, amazing. And I'm just remembering back to November when I was just freshly here and she had balloons and had everybody sing happy birthday. So I thought only fitting that we sing happy birthday to her as well. Will you please join me in the choir in singing happy birthday to Vanessa. The words of our covenant are some of the promises we make to one another about what it means to commit to being in community, this community together. I invite you to say them with me. Love is the spirit of this church and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom, and to help one another. Thank you all for the birthday wishes. My parents are here. Why don't you guys raise your hands? And my dad's birthday is May 5th also. Poor guy's been sharing his birthday since he was 26 years old. It's just not fair. And I don't know if you guys remember our intern, Sherry Halliday Kwan, those of you who've been around, she called on Friday night to, uh, from the car, she was driving to dinner to say she wanted to sing Happy Birthday, and I said, who is singing? Because she is married to Elizabeth, who's an opera singer. And let me say, that was a phenomenal version, but I have never heard so many high notes hit in the resonance of a car than that version of Happy Birthday. So maybe at the auction we'll sell next year, Elizabeth calling someone and singing Happy Birthday. Actually, I'm gonna do that, because that would be phenomenal. 
So I'm sharing with you readings from this anthology that came out in the fall that I pulled together, and you'll hear a little bit more about the history of the book and this piece. So I get to pick out some that I really love to share with you. This piece by Cheryl M. Walker called Amani's Question. There used to be a television program called Kids Say the Darndest Things in which children would say things that adults found cute and amusing. What there should also be is a show entitled Kids Ask the Darndest Questions and they really want answers. Anyone who has spent an appreciable amount of time with a four-year-old knows this to be true. Most times, we adults give the best answers we can in the moment, and that seems to be satisfactory. If it's not, it will be followed by another question and another and another. Sometimes the question is more important to the adult than the answer is to the child. When my niece, Amani, her name means faith in Swahili, when she was four, she asked me such a question. Innocent on her part, it would be the most important question anyone ever asked me. The entire trajectory of my life changed because she asked Imani's question. It was going to be a lovely weekend with my sister and her children. We lived in different states and I made a point of visiting often so that I could be a part of her children's lives. My sister warned me before I came that Amani was in the death stage. She had discovered the concept of death and was eager to talk about it with anyone and everyone. I had been through this phase with my other nieces and children of my friends, so I felt prepared this time. Sure enough, we sat in the backyard and Amani said to me, Grandpa died. My father had died not too long ago. And I replied, yes, I know. He died from candy, she said. <laughs> this was confusing, so I excused myself and asked my sister why Amani thought my father had, our father had died of candy. My sister told me that she had told Amani he died of cancer rather than saying he died because he was sick, having learned from her first child that such an explanation would mean every time someone got sick, she would think that they were gonna die. So my sister was more specific this time. Amani somehow confused cancer and candy, and because she no longer asked for candy as much, <laughs> my sister decided not to correct her. I returned to my conversation with Amani. Auntie Cheryl, am I going to die? Yes, Amani. One day, a long time from now, you will die. Auntie Cheryl, are you going to die? Yes, Amani. One day I will die. Someday everyone will die. At this point, I thought I was ready for the next question. After all, I'd been through this before. I was expecting Tamani, Imani to ask somewhat gleefully, as they all had, Auntie Cheryl, when are you going to die? I had some answer prepared, which I do not remember anymore, so I felt ready. But Imani means faith, and that is not the question she asked. Instead, she asked, Auntie Cheryl, how many more mornings will you wake before you die? 
I was not prepared for that question. Amani waited patiently for an answer, and after a bit, I answered, more than Maya can count. Maya is Amani's older sister, who was just shy of seven back then. I knew she could count to 100, but after that, it got a little iffy. It was a good enough answer for Imani, and she changed the subject to something else. She would be satisfied, and I was left uneasy. How many more mornings would I wake up? What was I doing with those mornings? What should I be doing with those mornings? The question nagged me and nagged at me. The next thing I knew, I was going to seminary. <laughs> it changed my life forever, and the question stays with me still. How many more mornings will you wake before you die? Here ends our reading. It was 1991, and Joanne, Carolyn, and I, three Franciscan women, had just moved into a barrio in Nicaragua. The next day, some neighbors showed up at our house with a child who looked maybe about two years old. They knew little about her. They did know that her mom left her all day alone in a small wooden shack while she went to work as an empleada, a maid in the adjacent colonia. They thought maybe that we could do something. The mother would leave the child all day with one leg tied to a scissor bed while she went to work. Joanne and I were a bit caught as we had made plans to take the bus and join Carolyn for lunch. We didn't yet have a stove to cook, so we had planned to eat out. There weren't any phones for us to call Carolyn or to adjust our plans, so our only option seemed to take this little munchkin with us. We were a little anxious because we didn't know if her mother would return before we got back. What if we ran into her carrying her child? What if someone else recognized her being carried out of the barrio by, by two gringos? Still, we did. The awkward thing was we didn't know her name. As we sat on the bus, I would say, Maria, Guadalupe, Ana, nothing. She didn't respond. And more amazingly, I noticed she didn't cry. She hadn't cried in the whole ordeal. That later became something that I noticed why cry? There wasn't anyone around to hear. Carolyn, of course, was naturally a bit surprised when we appeared with this child in tow. After telling her what had unfolded that morning, we had a good laugh. Just the day before, the Marinol sisters had visited us in our new home, and we all joked that one of us had to have a child because the land we had built our house on had no title. 
The land was an invaded settlement, so with no title, the only thing was that the house could be passed on to an heir. I, being the youngest in the crowd, was seen as the most viable option for such a task. And then poof, here appears this 20-plus-month-old child who actually looked a little like me. When the mother returned home later that day, she was told that we had our, her daughter with us. When she arrived, we talked with her and asked her how we and the other neighbors could maybe help her. We learned that the name of the child was Carla Vanessa. We never guessed that one. That day began a whole journey. There's not enough time to tell the whole story, but it eventually came to be that Carla Vanessa was taken to a children's home, and I became kind of like the informal guardian. Most every weekend and holiday, she came to our house. We provided her clothes and her care and the continuity, and we loved her. And yet we, I was limited. I couldn't adopt her. I couldn't even have her live with us full time. I would get weepy each week as we had to take her back to the children's home on the bus as she would begin to recognize the landmarks as we would go around and she would begin to cry. She had learned to cry out loud because somebody was there to respond. After many dramatic twists and turns, the mother taking her out of the children's home and disappearing for months, only to abandon her again, Carla was returned to the children's home in Managua, and once again we began our weekly time. Then one afternoon, a woman showed up at our house. I recognized Joan. She was a Canadian living and working in Nicaragua. She came to tell me that she was beginning the adoption process of a little girl, and it happened to be Carla Vanessa. What she came to ask me was for me to fade in the background, not to connect with Carla for a while, while she became Carla Vanessa's mother. I did understand, and I cried too. Joan had made a decision to be a mother. I had made a decision not to. Taking another under one's wing is a beautiful and heart-wrenchingly complicated thing to do. With Carla and many beings since, I am forever being stared down by my limitations, whether they be the inability to be one's real mother or heal the impossible and ingrained needs of one who has deep loss and abandonment or the limitations set by choices and decisions and other commitments I have made. The unexpected adventures that come with making it up as you go along, the unbelievable learnings and memories, and the deep gratitude sit side by side with the heart feeling torn in letting go.
and still I would do it all over again. Just to say, we reconnected when Joan arrived a year or two later to invite me to Carla's graduation from kindergarten. It was a new moment, and we were new friends. And Carla now is a beautiful, grown woman living and working in Canada.
I'm going to invite us to center ourselves, feet on the ground, back against the pew, breathe deep. Let some of what tethers you get unhooked for just a little while. And join me in a spirit of prayer and meditation. Some say love is not a noun, just like God is not a noun. They say love is better understood as a verb, as something in motion, like a bird or a cherub with wings. Something that doesn't want to stay in one place, rooted or locked up or invested in bonds with the promise of safe returns. Love can't stand to be buried like the coins in that story in the Bible, the one about the owner who entrusted his fortune to people, but comes back expecting to see it multiplied. And love some also say is not singular, not me or mine, not his or hers or theirs, but ours. Shared, like the car the whole family has to make work for the whole family, hardly ever parked in the driveway for long passed back and forth until its edges are worn like shoes that have gone the distance or the ears of the velveteen rabbit. So what does it mean when we say we love or love is the spirit of a place What does it mean in a verbing world of love, a plural love universe? It means you'll see it, that love like a streak in the sky, like static electricity that flies across a handshake. in eyes wrinkled in a real welcome, or eyes locked but tender, listening when you share for real how you're doing. If love is a verb, is a thing in motion, look for the feathers in the air. Sniff for the smell of coins unearthed, and a place or a people 
that passes the most precious things they have like a game of holy hot potato. There we'll find the word and the world we are looking for. May we all be such a people. May we find and make such a place. May we know such a love again and again and again and pass it along. Calling into our shared connected community in a moment of prayer and shared meditation we call into this space all who have taught us such a love. And we give thanks. Amen. And now our offering for the work's transformative ministry in the world of the Black Women's Health Initiative will be both given and very gratefully received.
The next selection I want to share with you is one by Kim Wildchesky called Veil. I have packed your favorite foods, a juice box with a bendy straw, and your coat in case it gets cold. I am coming with my picnic basket, flowers, some books, and song. I am ready, sweet beloved, for the steel wall of here and there to break into fine, movable metals. For the dirt and earth and whatever has made home in the ash of your body to choose something less separate again. I am ready, sweet child, for the veil to become thin. If you were to reach out from your grave like the, ch the children fear, I would reach back to you. If you were to flash the lights like the movies show, I would dance to the strobe light of your spirit. I sleep for your dream. I wake for your memory. I love and laugh and claim joy in your honor. I am ready, sweet beloved. Here is your hat, your soft things, your snow boots you wore all spring. They say the veil will thin. About two years ago, when my daughter was a junior in high school, I could see that I needed to prepare for goodbye. Some forced preparation because I was not going to like it. I wanted time to reflect on what this chapter of my life had meant, this chapter of active, full-bodied parenting. I wanted time to prepare to let her go. But I'm someone I have discovered over the years who is much more likely to do things for myself if I'm accountable to someone else. So I hit on this brilliant idea. I would do a book. I'd make an excuse to be in this conversation with other people. I'd give us all a chance to put a bow on the years of diapers and skinned knees. I'd ask them to, with me, pick their heads, if they were still in it, out of the daily slog, the long haul of bottles and school trips, to pull out a gem or two and to acknowledge it, that it was about more than just the business of life, but it was part of our journey of meaning-making and spiritual formation. And to that end, I didn't actually want it to be just parents. I wanted to include everyone in this reflection, everyone who is in the work of loving and companioning young lives, everyone who had fingers and toes and arms and whole bodies immersed in this piece of life, wherever and however we stepped into it or were yanked unceremoniously into it, and sometimes both. I wanted to be in this community of reflection at which I would have the privilege to stand at the center. It was incredibly brilliant, if I do say so myself, and I am saying so myself. 
So I pitched the idea to Skinner House Books, which is our internal Unitarian Universalist publishing house, for whom I've done two smaller books of just my own reflections. And we together clarified some things, and they accepted the proposal, and we were off to the races. I started reaching out for submissions. I wrote folks who I knew were thoughtful about their lives. I tried to get every possible perspective from a person who chose to be child-free. Cheryl Walker, who wrote the Imani's Question Reflection, wrote that piece, to people who'd entered into relationship with kids in all the different forms and relationships I could think of, grandparents, adoring aunties, Richard Davis Lowell, where are you, Richard? Wrote a piece that's in the book that's beautiful about his stepping into being a big brother with the boy, now man, Andre, who comes to church sometimes, becoming part of that connection, that gorgeous thing that many of us know as chosen family. There were stepmothers and parents who negotiated multicultural families. And because I wanted this to be a full spectrum of what caretaking looked like or represented, I even reached out to two colleagues who had suffered the worst kind of losses, reached out as tenderly as I could to see if they would be willing to contribute so those who suffered similar losses could see themselves in this collection too. And Kim's piece that I read was one of those. They graciously, gorgeously agreed. I want I want everyone who stepped into the book to find or see themselves somewhere reflected in at least one of its stories. And the only experience that I hoped for but isn't represented is that of trans families or parents of kids who are genderqueer or transitioning. Although actually there are some of those families in the book, but they're not talking about that part of their journey, so they're not evidently so. Or they felt that that story wasn't theirs as the parent to tell. So I also left room in the opening introduction for a sequel to the book. If you don't see yourself in it, you're supposed to email me at vrsouthernbook at uusf.org because it's clear we couldn't capture all the stories worth capturing and sharing in one hundred-page volume. I realized when I was writing the sermon that I haven't checked the email box. I'm scared a little bit, but also hoping it's full. And the journey of pulling it together was a surprise. I don't know why I thought it didn't think that it might be. I guess we don't know what we don't know until we know it. <laughs> it's part of the adventure of life. And the truth is, when I reached out or sent out things to Unitarian Universalist listservs and colleague groups, in retrospect, I realized that I expected something different than what I got back. I expected a lot of light-hearted things. Like Cheryl Walker says in her essay, Amani's Question, I expected a lot of kids say the darndest things. I expected sweet stories of out of the mouths of babes wisdom, or epiphanies, or love songs sung by a worn out caregiver looking at a sleeping child. <laughs> 
I worried, in fact, at the get-go that the volume might lean into Hallmark sweetness and lack enough texture and muscle. Boy, was I wrong. What came in was so much broader than what I had envisioned. One colleague who I knew was thoughtful and intentional and a passionate person and parent wrote an essay about raising her biracial child in a white UU setting and wondering if she can stand to watch her daughter suffer the same microaggressions that she, the mother, has tolerated. Whether it's right to subject her child to that, as much as the mother adores our faith and serves it with her life, there was a reflection about a child who swings between incredible sweetness and uncontrollable violence and how hard it is to be their parent. There was a reflection about loving a child who is yours only by marriage and losing rights to them in a divorce, infertility, a story we skipped this morning for time concerns about a woman raising a boy with autism and his vulnerability of being in the world, misunderstood the vulnerability and fear she has for him. Like Carmen's reflection, so many of our stories were about the heartbreak and joy that comes when you choose or life thrusts you into the wild ride of the roller coaster of companioning young life. Loving a child, someone once said, is like forever having your heart outside your body. So many stories had that vulnerability, theirs and ours, the children and our own woven into them. The stories that came to me, in fact, had such richness and heaviness that by the time the collection was done, I asked the editor and publisher that I was working with if they thought the collection was too much of a downer, <laughs> too hard. The opposite, in fact, of the Hallmark After School book I thought it might be. No, they agreed. It had both energies in it. It felt grounded and rich and hard and true and joyful, that strange kind of joy, the bittersweet kind, maybe the most real description of joy there is. Maybe that was one of the takeaways of being at the honored position to sit at the center of this anthology to realize all the layers of the stories around you, ones that you don't normally get to see unless someone lets you in, and how none of them is hallmark. None of our lives are hallmark. The world of our journeys with young lives, with all the unfolding of those lives, with all the circumstances of those lives, and the challenges, and the grace, but also the hammer of fate sweeping across and through them is one window into the same forces that land in all of our lives to challenge and temper us. And so life with another life, always as with these young lives, is destined to be bittersweet. 
Sweetness mixed with the struggle, laughter with the heartbreak. Often if it's theirs, it's heartbreak that we would take away if we could. But instead we just witness and stand by and help pick up the pieces from and put them back on their feet. Stand by until they reach out again. And no sooner do you realize the hardship of standing in this piece of it than you remember that someone stood in this place for us. Or more accurately, a bunch of someones, right? An aunt here, a nurse at the health center there, a teacher, a coach, a friend's father, a friend's mother, a neighbor, all the lives that companioned all of our lives through all the bitter and all the sweetness of our life, the hallmark and the heartbreak. And what we do then when we offer to step into a young life, anyone's life, is to offer to be there for that too, the mix of it. That's what life together means, all of it. Bitter and sweet, I guess we don't get through any other way, do we? It was the exact thing I was contending with that brought me to write the book, Preparations for an Empty Nest, right? Bitter and sweet. I write in one of my two essays in the book, which I will modify now, the following about that. It must have been around six months when we were told it should happen that our daughter Lila, our only child, crawled across the living room rug for the first time. Rohit, my husband and I were both there to witness it, all that coordination of limbs, chubbiness in determined motion. We cheered, which was probably what made the kid fall over. And then I started crying, sobbing, I guess. What's the matter? Rohit asked, surprised and confused as one would be. And here's what I said, which is what I thought in the moment of her first crawl through the universe. Now she's crawling, and then she'll be walking. He nodded with an expression of, yes, so far so good, right? And then she'll be leaving home and going to college, and it will be over. <laughs> it was jumping the gun, of course, but... It was where my mind and heart went, that sense that time once started just blasts off and it's over in an eye blink. There was a lot I didn't mention or foresee in that moment, the stuff that fills up the years, first days of this and that and illness and sleepovers and getting grit and being gutsy and being compassionate and such a great dancer. Oh, and all that constant singing in the house, that too, so much between crawling and leaving. Bean, as we call her, is now finishing her first year in college. And so I want to say that that woman crying all those years ago, kneeling on the living room rug between, behind a surprised chubby baby who had just figured out how to make arm and leg work in opposing rhythm to propel herself forward, that woman was right. They were just an eye blink away from goodbye. 
Little did I know what I would learn and have learned in all the companioning of young lives, as I'm sure you have stories, all of which are going to send me to that email address. And little did I know what I would have underlined for me when I proposed this anthology. How even the parts of life that we think should be the most joyful, if we look closely, are hard and heartbreaking and gorgeous and treasured, bitter and sweet, no piece of life exempt. And how I learned that empty nesting was just one story of all the stories of loving and letting go that were part of parenting, temporal stories of letting go and final ones. And that how that also is part of life, a window into what's true in every piece of our lives, that we are always an eye blink away from some piece of goodbye. which is terribly scary and also very important to remember, right? So we keep our eyes open and our hands outstretched in welcome and we hold one another and we treat our time together as an incredibly sacred gift, which it is. So I want us to take a moment and Give thanks for everybody who companioned and loved our lives and for all we companioned. May I thank you for your gift to the universe and send a blessing to us all for all the ways we love the world forward. Amen. Let's sing as our closing hymn in our gray hymnal, Hymn number 131, Love Will Guide Us.
I invite us to remain standing. You can put down your hymnals. If you have people close to you, you can connect in that outstretched arms, always in welcome, holding one another. Life is precious. There we go. <laughs> Sometimes it takes work to reach one another. <laughs> and now, in our comings and our goings, may the light of love shine upon us. Out from within us, be gracious unto us and grant us peace. For this is the day we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. <laughs>